Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. So, what does it mean to be a modern warrior? First off, the elephant in the room. Warrior isn't a dirty word. A warrior is mindful. They seek excellence and have learnt to control their aggression. It's about understanding leadership, developing individual resilience, and seeking consistent human optimization. Remember, lifting heavy isn't dangerous. Being weak is dangerous. Fortune favors the brave, and you're never given more than you can handle. This, then, is the Warrior You podcast. All call signs. Ready, ready, ready. Let's roll! Hey Trent. Hey Bram, how you going? Got your sound sorted out. Yeah, it's good now, isn't it? It's really good. G'day team, welcome back to the Warrior You podcast series seven, episode wow. one. It's um, full on, isn't it? Yeah, and a massive hello again to you, my friend Trent, the Minister for Obtuse Facts and Outrageous Figures. <laughs> wow, that's harsh. Wait, it's harsh, but, uh, but I kind of like it. I've I kind of like it. I've got 19 more of these racked up for the rest of the series. <laughs> this week, the topic is on friendships, and in particular, are your friendships holding you back? Yeah, apparently, we all want to build better relationships, <laughs> apparently, and uh, have more time and structure in our lives dedicated to achieving our goals. But the path to achieving that, I guess, can sometimes feel, or you know, can feel overwhelming. So this week, we're going to be talking about Dunbar's number. And I'm really excited about this because I've been planning this for a while, this podcast. So Dunbar's number is a theory that can help you to understand the effect relationships have on, well, on your success, on your life, and how to use or utilize this theory to get more success in your life, not just success, but, you know, just uh, fulfillment. Anyway, um, Trent, what's Dunbar's number? Well, Bram, for those of you who haven't heard about Dunbar's number, it's a theory about the limits and structures of our interactions and relationships with other people. And here's a massive surprise for you all. We actually have Dr. Robin Dunbar himself joining us today to discuss this in a little more detail. But basically, there's a specific number of stable relationships that our brains are capable of maintaining, and that magic number is apparently 150. So today, we're going to look at the science behind this number, what it reveals about the way we interact with others, and how we can use it practically in the real world. But first, let's look at why maintaining close friendships is important to our lives and well-being. Robin Dunbar, he's an anthropologist who wanted to understand the link between 
primate brain size and the ability to maintain stable and long-lasting social connections. So in 1992, he began applying his study to humans and he concluded that the human brain can sustain 150 stable relationships in total while still maintaining stability, memories and connections with each um, individual. Clearly, he wasn't watching The Simpsons when he did that and see the relationships <laughs> that Homer um, has because uh, that's a lot less than 150, but anyway. Indeed. Um, look, it's estimated that in early civilization, humans would spend about 42% of their time on social grooming, literally picking things off each other as a way to interact before they were capable of speech, yeah. which I thought was pretty important. Yeah, and you know, I've spoken previously about how the basis of many of our interactions are actually um, rooted in early forms of grooming. Um, and that yeah, right. gave way, yeah, and that gave way to modern day gossip. So, we form connections with other people by sharing information because it helps us to realise we have something um, in common, which is crucial to strengthening those relationships. I'll, I'll give you an example. So in evolutionary um, aspects, primates that were developed towards humans, they started like jumping on each other's backs and cracking uh, lice or mites or fleas or whatever in the ears of the other, the other um, primate because they wanted them to know they were giving them a gift. They wanted to be liked. And we haven't actually stopped that evolutionary habit, except that now it's probably not appropriate to go, you know, walking into the common room and <laughs> jump on your co-host's back, Trent, and start going through their hair and cracking lice. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. Um, wow. Wow. So now we like we, we, we might go outside or we might you know form up in the, in the you know go to the coffee shop or the water does anyone mm. have water bubblers anymore but anyway if they've got if they're in the 1950s and they still have water bubblers then what they do is they're gathering around those and they're starting to you know they might start talking about uh, and, and now insert any unsubstantiated rumor or innuendo yeah. and that is the same it's an evolutionary throwback to to that time so. From a leadership perspective, and we teach this in, in hindsight, you know, in our leadership and resilience company, we teach this to our clients, that they have to be controlling the narrative because if they're not, they're up against evolution. Yeah, so rumours will start just because people are trying to strengthen the social fabric of their relationships. Mm, so that, that's, I think that's really a powerful thing to consider as a leader. Yeah, and rumours are, uh, are really a uh, leadership challenge, you know, yeah. controlling the narrative as you were talking about. Yeah, yeah so Dunbar's number I, I think raises a lot, a lot of questions about us and our relationships and our capacity to be social. How many friends can one person have? Um, I guess how, how much does the size of a friend group impact on the stability of the relationships within it? How does modern technology impact this number? And I'd love to ask... Um, Dr. Robin Dunbar, that question. Mm. More importantly, can we can we use it to apply some structure to our own social lives and prioritise more meaningful relationships? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I actually think this is going to be a great tool. So let's start mm. by having a think about the actual number itself. So 150 people sounds like a lot, right? I mean, 150 yep. is a lot. Think about doing 150 burpees. <laughs> You know, no. 150, 150 <laughs> thrusters for time with five burpees every minute on the minute. Anyway, for someone who's Wait. mildly introverted, as a lot of the, the leaders are who we've, who we've taught over the years, that number would feel really daunting. But if we just take a moment and think about the number um, of people that you interact with, I think you'll see that 
pretty quickly we we exhaust that number. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there's, of course, there's the close friends or the family that you engage with on a daily basis, friends, mm. colleagues at work, teammates from sport that you play, uh, people you see at the gym, your local barista, or maybe 10 of them in your case, Bram. <laughs> um, and then there's the people that you socialize with at events like weddings or uh, milestone birthdays, social media, friends. That's interesting. That, that comes back to that technology question and others that may not be physically close but play a part in your life regardless these interactions i guess range from meaningful connections to group socializing and maybe even those little micro connections and i think we're just talking about um you know those small interactions that you have with someone that may not actually be an acquaintance but you're acknowledging their presence sort of thing yeah, so what is what's a what is a micro connection then? Well, it's something as simple as a, maybe a shared smile or a laugh or an eye roll or a you know, how you going and you know, raise your chin as you as you walk past. But these little interactions add up and are really important. At, at the end of the day, it's our relationships with the others that remind us our, of our humanity and give us a sense of belonging to to a particular group. And this is something that we all need. Yeah, right. And Applying Dunbar's number to your to your life will give you three things: um, structure and the ability mm. to have more control over how you spend your time, um, an increased efficiency and effectiveness, and more time to achieve to achieve your goals, and then the opportunity to build better relationships. So, mm. I've got an awesome idea, Trent. Okay, let's get practical. And start writing some lists of our numbers and then curate them like an auditable trail to make us better than we were yesterday, right? So what I mean is I'm going to walk you through how to develop your list of 150 people. Just tell me if it works or not. It's probably easier for uh, for our listeners to do this at the end of the podcast or perhaps pause the podcast as we go through each part of it um, since the list can get quite detailed. And I want you to make a list, first of all, of your five closest friends. So what I guess these are the relationships you would then invest the most time and effort in, uh, the ones where you, where you should be the most reliable and make yourself the most emotionally available, I guess. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So you would make a, a list of those five closest friends. They might even be, as we've discussed before, your family, you know, your wife, mm. um, girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, mm. uh, maybe even the people that you interact with in the household. And yeah. then... Uh, think about your relationships with each one of those. How did you meet them? Um, how long have you known them for? How often do you see or communicate with that person? Do you both put equal amounts of effort into maintaining the relationship? And then once you have your five sort of intimate friends, you then write down the names of your next 10 good friends. And this might be a group of people that you frequently spend time with or that you socialise with. Then what we need to do is think about how well you know these people, how often you spend time with them, the quality of that relationship. Is there anything you can do to improve uh, the quality of these relationships, for instance? Um, And do they bring you satisfaction? Uh, Do they bring you fulfilment? Or perhaps they're toxic and that needs to be identified Mm. as well. What, What are your thoughts, Trent? Yeah, you know, you know what I've been thinking as you've been talking about this is that it's a deeply reflective practice 
And, you know, I was sort of, as you were talking about it, I was sort of scanning through and adding people to, you know, both those tiers or those those concentric circles and wondering who's in that circle and who's not in that circle and why. And I think, you know, the, the challenge in this is really around being reflective about who is actually in these concentric circles. Yeah, I wonder how many people have actually sat there and made these these lists and and then um, audited these or curated these lists to see perhaps who's in that group that might be toxic. And actually, where do you sit in that group? Like from an intelligence perspective, or well, this would be interesting to ask mm. you too. You know, does that matter? And should yeah, you wow. should you create that list and put more intelligent people in that top fifteen? I wonder if this is where that saying comes from. You're essentially the the sum of your five closest friends. Yeah, we should ask him that. Yeah. Righto, so the next 35 names, so we've got 15, the next 35 names then would be the people you consider friends, you know, that'll bring your total to 50. So this could be uh, workmates, people you've met while traveling, perhaps it's your neighbor or someone that you meet for coffee every now and then. And then we we, um, note down how you met these people, how often you are in contact with them and what you normally do together. And then could anyone on this list potentially be bumped up to your top 15? Maybe they're a high performer in something. Maybe they're someone who you're really you know, interested in to know more about. Perhaps they bring you more fulfillment. And then um, That's you, lastly, That's you. write down the names of 100 acquaintances to bring mm-hmm. your total to 150. And this might include friends of friends that you only see occasionally or former work colleagues just people you can list off the top of your head. These are the people you will usually see or communicate with, you know, not very often. Um, And the relationships that require not much attention to maintain. Um, But they're probably people you still like if you think about it, if you're recalling these Mm -hmm. people um, from your past perhaps. Yeah, I guess the the really uh, critical aspect of this, it's it's the so what. So I guess the next step uh, is to take a critical look at that list and possibly make some decisions about it. Mm. Um, you know, is there anything you can do to actively strengthen the relationships? Are those people that uh, are in a particular group, should they be in a different group? Yeah. You know, a good starting point is to, to look at what you've written down about those 150 people. Um, basically, you've created a quick reference tool for things that you have in common. So you can use this to develop the relationship through shared activities. That's probably a good start. Yeah, you know, we've talked a lot about just bouncing people up to the next sector, like from the 100 to Mm. the 50 or the 15. But I actually wonder, you know, could it be time to demote some people, to cut them away? Um, Yeah. You know know me, mate. I'm pretty quick. To cut people away if if I think that they aren't positive or or they aren't able to contribute to the mission, um, I just don't bother. I just don't waste my time on them unless there's a reason that I've decided to wa- to waste my time. To be fair, if it's not a waste, I mean, it might sound yeah. harsh, but you know, in a world where where we all seem to be constantly busy, yeah, you know, I, I think we need to be really um, quite realistic about the time we have available and, and how we spend that time like for me to to, Mm. for me to 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 reach out and and answer every single person on instagram that ever contacts me to help them to get in the defense force or to be a better leader or to be a better Mm. husband or dad or whatever if i if i devoted all my time to that yeah my family wouldn't eat you know and so so for me some of these and some of these people are toxic and some of them are awesome and some of them Mm. are like hey i want you i want you in my life because you bloody you're positive and you're after this you know and so well i guess while it's hard to admit it being realistic might mean putting a stop to investing that time and that effort 
into those unstable sort of toxic relationships, the ones that are emotionally draining. And I wonder, like I get, I get um, emotionally fatigued when I'm dealing with some, some people, you know, and they just take it out of me. And then there's not enough to give back to the people who, who really need it. I think we've all been there at some point in time, you know, whether it's a, a former partner, maybe it's a friend that you've had for 15, 20 years and, and they're no longer friends for, for a reason. I think we've all probably been there. And, you know, if you go back to your school days, your high school days, I mean, how many people actually, you know, after 10, 15 years are still circulating around those people that they were best, you know, BFFs mm. in, in high school in year 12? Yeah, that's right. Well, mate, I think let's get into it. I, I don't know if you're as excited as I am. I am. I am. St- yeah. All right. Let's, let's do this. Well, coming up uh, straight after this is Dr. Robin Dunbar, the anthropologist. Dr. Robin Dunbar is a world-renowned anthropologist specialising in primate behaviour. Currently, he is a professor of evolutionary psychology at the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom. Dr. Dunbar's research is concerned with trying to understand the behavioural, cognitive and neuroendocrinological mechanisms that underpin social bonding in primates and humans. Understanding these mechanisms and the functions that relationships serve will give us insights into how humans have managed to create large-scale societies using a form of psychological behaviour that is evolutionary, um, evolutionarily adapted to very small-scale societies and why these mechanisms are less than perfect in the modern world. This has implications for the design of social networking sites as well as mobile technology, believe it or not. Dr. Dunbar uses conventional behavioural and cognitive experimental approaches combined with network analysis, agent-based modelling, comparative studies of primate brain evolution, neuroimaging and neuroendocrinology to explore explicit and implicit processes at both the dyadic and the group level. An important feature of his behavioural studies has been the constraints that time places on an individual's ability to manage their relationships and the cognitive tricks used to overcome these. You know what? To date, he has published 20 authored or edited books or special journal issues, 310 articles in scientific journals, seven technical reports on commercially commissioned research, and over 100 pieces of science journalism and 130 book reviews. Uh, Dr. Robin Dunbar, welcome. Where does today's podcast find you? It finds me on the Wirral, which is uh, that funny little bit that sticks out between Liverpool in the north and Wales to the south. Okay. How's the weather over there, the, the whole the COVID situation and just life in general in the UK? Um, well, the weather is uh, Perth weather. It's beautifully sunny here and uh, uh, looking good so far. It's still a bit cool, actually, but outside. But uh, spring is definitely with us, I think. Actually, it's been a very good mild winter one way and another. And as for COVID, well, we're still enjoying lockdown as best we can. How long have you been in uh, lockdown now? Uh, well, this is the second time around. We um, mm. had an early version and then they released it in the summer and kind of put it back in place again in the autumn and then released it for Christmas and decided that was a very bad idea because there was a huge surge in 
in uh, uh, cases. So they put us under very strict lockdown in, in early mm-hmm. January. In about a month's time, we're supposed to be um, kind of emerging from it, I think. I want to get straight into it because I'm dying to know. Uh, <laughs> I'm dying to know around this this theory, this you know Dunbar's theory, which I think, first of all, kudos to you for using your name in the theory. That's exactly what I would have done. What did the human study consist of to 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 be able to come up with the in particular with the number of 150 social connections well the number was actually predicted off the back of a an equation relating social group size to brain size in monkeys and apes and i was like you do uh three o'clock in the morning wondering idly what all this meant i thought "Mm, let's stick humans into the equation and see what it tells us and uh there, blow me down, you know, it said 150, which sounded very small uh, to me. I mean, you know, given that you know, half the human population lives in mega cities uh, around the world, that uh, I thought it really ought to be bigger than that. But it wasn't, so I started looking for, um, I, well, at least I thought the best place to look was kind of hunter-gatherer societies because we'd lived in, as a species, in hunter-gatherer type societies for most of our evolutionary history. So I started collating census data on group sizes and hunter-gatherers all around the world. So I included Australian Aboriginals, uh, South American Indians, uh, um, North American Indians, Eskimos, um, uh, South African hunter-gatherers and so on. And sure enough, um, the typical kind of community size was about 150 almost exactly. And then since then, We've been sort of looking at different uh, kinds of data, so historical data on village sizes, the infamous um, doomsday book uh, uh, produced by William the Conqueror in 1087 Mm. so that he could figure out how much tax to charge his uh, (laughs) newly conquered subjects. Well, so um, all those, allowed. so all those little villages were, were roughly a hundred and fifty people. Yeah. Wow, yeah. across the yeah. whole of, of Europe as well as the United Kingdom. Or? No, that well, uh, that certainly England and Wales. Mm. And, and amazingly enough, when William the Conqueror divided England up between himself and his henchmen, his kind of um, officers, if you like, uh, there were a hundred and fifty of them that all got a chunk of. <laughs> England. That's interesting. So this number number reappears in yeah. military units, if you like, from uh, the Norman Conquest right through to modern armies. Of course, that's the average size of companies. I mean, they vary from one country to another between about 120 in the British Army to about 180 in the American Army, and Australia is somewhere in the middle there. Yeah. Um, but the average is very much about 150. Mm-hmm. Um, if, but also there's some nice data come out of Italy on grazing communities in the Alps. And, and this is uh, 800 years of essentially village sizes up there. And again, the average is very, very close to 150. So it reappears all over the place, basically, in both human organizations, but also in the size of our social network. So the number of friends and extended family that we have also turns out to average about 150. And that's really the number that's been labeled Dunbar's number, which incidentally, um, I didn't name Dunbar's <laughs> number. That was <laughs> that, 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 that was actually named on Facebook, I think. <laughs> Trend- there, can't be, there can't be too many people that have got a, a number named after them, right? 
I believe there's only five of us alive at the moment, so I'm getting a little worried here. But well, you know, um, I've actually got Connolly's leadership law, don't I, Trent? And that's why I, that's why, which is which is high, which is high performing leaders drives high performing cultures, which drives high performance. And um, so I thought, I thought if anyone's named something after him, I want him on the show. Like this should just be. The show. And, and we're working out Trent's theory, Trent's theory of relativity. I don't know if you've heard about it, but anyway. <laughs> is this relativity in any particular area or just relativity no, you don't, yeah just just being relative i think you don't have to be you don't have to be first you just have to be the best what i really like about dunbar's number is the is how we can break it up into those five sort of close friends the 15 good friends 50 friends and then and then and then another 100 acquaintances are we that dissimilar or are we that similar to apes that we can, we've only got that much bandwidth for them to be meaningful relationships at that, that level? Um, it, it, the short answer is yes. I mean, if you look at the sizes of groups in monkey and ape species, what you see is these numbers replicated very nicely, both across species and also in the species that live in kind of large social groups, you find these layers within those groups. And those layers occur at about 5, 15, 50, and 150. It's, it's only humans that have the 150 layer, though. Mm. None of the apes and monkeys. I mean, you will find groups that are bigger than about 50, but the average group size and a stable group size for all monkey and ape species, the largest uh, is only about 50. Those are sort of in the very social species like chimpanzees or baboons, for example. And there seems to be something odd about these numbers that makes them very stable. And you kind of see them replicated very nicely in in the structure of most uh, modern armies. You know, you're thinking of sections, platoons, companies. And then, of course, in humans, we can extrapolate these layers beyond the 150, although the, obviously the quality of the relationship becomes poorer and poorer, but out to 500, 1,500, where now you're talking about battalions and, and, and wow. regiments. So, so are, there, are there any other examples within... Uh, society other than that military construct, which, um, you know, is quite interesting to many of our listeners. But is there anything else outside of of that? I mean, you've spoken about villages and those sorts of things. Where do we see this number come up elsewhere? Yeah, like did Jack Welsh have 150 (laughs) executives, you know, GE or something like that? (laughs) I think if he didn't, he was in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) That may explain why it worked or didn't work, maybe. Um, The the one nice example of this is Gore-Tex, the the makers of the uh, waterproofing material that, you know, is probably we're all wearing right now as we speak even somewhere in the clothes of an incredibly successful company well when uh, Willard Gore set it up he having worked for a big multinational and become deeply impressed by how dysfunctional these big multinationals are decided he was going to work very small scale so he insisted that all his um Factory units were only 150 in size and absolutely nothing above 200 absolute tops. Mm. And that if he needed to expand, as of course they did as the company became more successful, 
they need to expand production, then they would do it not by building a bigger factory, which is what everybody does on the assumption that somehow there's kind of mm. savings of scale, if you like. He would build a new factory completely self-contained, sometimes even on the parking lot right next door. Mm. So the whole structure of Gore-Tex, uh, right from its start in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, I think it was, right the way through to now, so they still maintain this, uh, structure consists of these semi-independent units, mm. which uh, are kind of self-sufficient in a sense. Of course, the the board, which is it's primarily a family-owned com- company, but the board decides on kind of strategy and targets, mm. and then the um, individual factories are it's entirely up to them really to uh, fulfil their uh, targets in the best way they think possible. And and because it's small, then everybody knows everybody else. I mean, you're talking about company size in the army. You know, company is family, famously. It's it's the, you know, uh, mantra in the military. And and a lot of training in the military goes towards creating that sense of bonding between the guys. Yeah, And you get the same effect in, in Gore-Tex. They don't need labels on their jackets to tell you who's who because everybody knows who's the kind of factory manager, who's the accountant, who's you know the sales team, uh, uh, who pulls the levers, who makes the sandwiches, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. It's all kind of in-house and family. I'm, I'm wondering if this also extends to, I guess, the church or – or the the Amish or kibbutz, you know, those sort of, and without knowing it, they just seem to gravitate towards that number. Would that be right? Or? Uh, this is true. This is one of the kind of examples that actually caught us completely left field and really surprised us. But it turns out to be hmm. the opt- 150 turns out to be the optimal size for uh, parishes, and you see this both in kind of Church of England type parishes. Uh, even sort of American Presbyterian type type church parishes, um, as well as in sort of you know those kind of uh, more peculiar, if you like, um, groupings like the Amish and the Hutterites, who are huh. you know sort of rather more fundamentalist, very um, communally structured. They they're, they're farming communities, and the the, the, par- the parish or the congregation, whatever you like to call it, is. The community that owns and runs the farm as a as a basically a democratic um, institution, if you like. But they all seem to try and target 150 as the kind of optimal size for running something on a person to person, face to face basis. So, so the arm, uh, sorry, the Hutterites in particular, uh, who've been doing this for, for several hundred years now, argue that if you let the um, uh, community get above seriously above 150, then you start to need to have laws and courts, uh, law courts, and a police force. Mm. Uh, in other words, external discipline imposed to 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 keep the peace and make things run smoothly. Whereas if you keep it below about 150, it's all done on a <clears throat> personal basis you know you just have to go and talk to jim behind the bicycle sheds and say look you know we didn't really like what you did last week and he'll kind of go okay yeah well i won't do it again but you know when you've got too big a a community then you know jim's response on the whole is 
yeah, well, come and tell tell that to me and my brothers. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I mean, you know, from I'm sure from from the military, you know, at company level, it's the guys. You know, above that, you have to have discipline and salute the senior officer and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And you know, uh, <clears throat> don't disobey orders. Is there uh, and and Trent? Sorry, mate. I'm just got I've got so many questions. Like, is is there a percentage? So <laughs> Sorry, mate. Is there a percentage of time? He's, he's, doing, the, he's doing the relative bit yeah. at this point. You know, it's right. all right. <laughs> is, there a, is, there a, is there a percentage of time that we would spend with, with each one of these sort of groups? Like, I mean, and, and is the five predicated on perhaps a couple of those being family members or is, it, is that not taken into account? Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Well, let's just start with that last bit uh, because the, the, this, this 150 um, size of your social group consists of both family, extended family members and friends. And in kind of the modern uh, post-industrial world where, you know, we all have 1.8 children uh, on average, as it were, uh, as a family size, then family tends, even extended family tends to make up only about half that 150 and the rest is then made up with friends. But we can show from our data and I've had people comment on this uh, uh, many times uh, after giving lectures that, you know, if you come from a big extended family, you have fewer friends because we seem to give priority to family Mm. because in the end, you know, they're the ones that are going to come over the hill uh, and drop everything to support us right. if, if you know when your world falls apart. You know, uh, whereas friends are a little bit fickle <laughs> at times. Um, but the the the, the centra- centrality of, of family to all of us in that sense seems seems to be kind of dominating this, the the whole setup. So you you give priority to them first. So people who come from large families tend to have fewer friends, and they'll tell you, you know, it takes me all my time getting around seeing my cousins. <laughs> Never mind mind anybody else um so so it it is a mix and it tends to be a mix all the way through except the outermost layer so between 50 and 150 tends to be made up of family extended family members sort of distant cousins and the like Uh, and for a very good reason and that is they don't need so much effort to keep them in place friends require constant investment and therefore they tend to people the, the first three layers out to the, the 50 layer um, predominantly because those are the layers you devote most time to. And if if yeah. friends drift over into uh, the outer layer, they, they're at much more risk of sort of drifting out and beyond your 150 and just becoming uh, an acquaintance that you once knew. So the, the five is kind of, close friends then, then yeah, into... These, these, yeah, these are what I that, that inner core of five is what I call the shoulders to cry on friends because right. they're the ones that really are going to drop everything and, right. and and pick you up when your world falls apart. And they tend typically to consist of two family close family members, 
two close friends and kind of an odd one to make up the difference from either side. And that that number is very robust. And, you know, every data set uh, we have, that that inner core layer of, of kind of intimate friends, if you like, is always about five. Of course, it varies, you know, it probably varies from somewhere uh, around one or two to, to maybe six or seven, but it doesn't really vary higher than about seven. So so that's a really interesting segue, and it kind of leads me into to a question, which is how how is it that your studies um, came to determining that five was that optimal number hmm. of close friends? And, and does this vary between genders? And how the hell did Trent get in my five? That's the question, everyone. <laughs> well, you're, you're dropping quickly to the 50 layer, mate. <laughs> this is this is one of the great unanswered questions of the universe. You know, but we'll pass on that one before I get into trouble. <laughs> uh, um, so, 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 really, it came out of noticing that people had this um, very strong tendency to invest heavily in very small number of people. So. Remember, uh, you know, friends are very expensive. You have to keep investing in them. Otherwise, they'll just sort of drift away, unlike family members who are kind of held in place, really, by a kind of network of, uh, of extended family. Uh, friendships are very susceptible to your not seeing them or keeping contact with them often enough. Um, but when we looked at how often people did contact, and then we've looked at telephone calling frequencies, we've looked at actual face-to-face contact frequencies, even kind of frequencies of postings on Facebook and texting and all sorts of ways that people contact their friends and relationships. We noticed that this inner core of about five people tend to get around 40% of your total social effort. So 40% of your phone calls, 40% of your time, et cetera, et cetera. And we thought, gosh, this is a huge cost to pay. Um, you know, what is it that they do for you? So it prompted us to, A, go and, and look to see how stable these these uh, this number five was across different kinds of data sets, but also to kind of ask people, you know, do surveys asking people, you know, what do these people do for you? And very consistently it comes back as... This is this is the real cavalry. These are the ones that, out of a sense of obligation to you, uh, uh, are going to kind of come along and pick you up when 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 the uh, the chips are down. And and the contrast here, you know, is I sometimes invite people. If you really don't believe me, just just go out and step out onto the the main road uh, wherever you live and throw your arms around a stranger and say. Um, <laughs> You know, my world has fallen apart. You know, give us a hug or whatever, uh, and uh, I'll, I'll bet you fifty dollars to to a pound here that uh, their response is going to be to get out their phone, and they'll either phone the police or they'll phone the ambulance service for you. <laughs> but right. you know, if you do that to one of those five core friends, they'll uh, literally drop drop everything they're doing and uh, do what you need. And so, was there was there a difference in in uh, genders then in in the way that maybe males and females. Oh yeah, uh, yes. I mean, the, the, there is all the way through this stuff, and it, it kind of was unexpected. We hadn't expected mm. really to see much of a difference. Um, but women tend to have slightly more 
uh, friends in each layer than men. Not in the 150 layer, they kind of even out at, uh, at that far out. But certainly in the inner core layers, the 5 and the 15 layers, mm. women tend to have more uh, people in those layers than men. They're not a huge amount. You know, you're talking about four to five in the inner layer for men and five to six for women. But okay. it's very right. consistent. Right. Every single data set wow. we have has that. And that really goes back to the fact that women's friendships are much more uh, or women's social skills in this is is really the base of it are, are much better than men's they're, they're much better at figuring out what it how somebody's feeling and so on and i think this goes back to the fact that women's friendships are much more intense than men's are so much more focused and intense whereas the impression we get and having been in the army, you know, you, you you may have some observations to make on that. But but my sense is that guys kind of enjoy clubs. They like clubbishness, that, that kind of environments mm. much more, uh, and women don't. And that that kind of clubbishness, it is it's kind of it doesn't really matter who's in the club as long as you're a signed up member, right? So you see that what then happens is when a woman's friend uh, uh move close friend moves away somewhere else to another city uh they're constantly ringing each other up or facebooking or whatever uh to try and keep in contact whereas guys will tend to go obviously you know not in your cases <laughs> living as far apart as you do but in general kind of go oh yeah well you know if i ever get to adelaide i'll drop in and say hello but otherwise i'll just go around the corner and and, and, and get jim to come out drinking or playing football or whatever it is that, that you have to do. It's, guys are much more activity-based in their kind of uh, friendships, and that kind of creates this sense of a group, a club, if you like, that that's a, where, where the relationship in some sense is much more to the group rather than perhaps to the individuals. But but like all these things, you know, it's it's there's a lot of overlap clearly between the two sectors. So it's like, like to remind people... You know, it's the same, it's rather a similar difference to that between stature. You know, yes, on average, men are taller than women, but not all men are taller than all women. Yeah. So it's the same with these kind of social sure. uh, components too. I just wanted to ask another question. Um, you've mentioned a couple of times around uh, social media, and I'm really keen to see, particularly in this sort of COVID space that we're, we've all experienced around the world at the moment, what's your perception or what's the research showing around how social media impacts on this number, given that by engaging through social media, you're sort of avoiding that face-to-face contact and that activity-based, activity, you know, sure. activity-based discussions you were talking about. Uh, yeah, the uh, certainly our research, and I think other people has been some similar research being done in in Australia actually over on the other side, the East Coast. Um, but it tends to suggest very strongly that, you know, Facebook, texting, phone calls, Skype, Zoom, whatever, kind of work well enough, but they, they seem to function more like sticking plasters for papering over the cracks that would otherwise occur when you can't physically get to sort of sit down across the table and have a beer with somebody. Um, that there's nothing really to replace face-to-face contact in in terms of its quality uh, for relationship building. Um, And I I 
you know, my kind of view has come to be that all these kind of digital mechanisms that we now have, uh, as efficient and effective as they are, uh, all they do is slow down the rate at which relationships decay through not actually seeing the person, that they won't stop that relationship eventually, a friendship eventually becoming um, uh, an acquaintance, somebody you once knew. That's probably not going to happen with your best mate, you know, because those those kind of very close relationships will last a lifetime and, and you know, will survive not, not seeing people so often. But that kind of second-layer grouping of the guys you did stuff with, um, uh, you know, that those will just drift away if you don't see them. Now, Facebook and the like uh, will will paper over those cracks and slow it down a bit, but it's, it, I don't think it will do it forever. And it, it partly goes back to the fact that these digital environments, there's something slightly artificial about them. You yeah, know, the, so. yeah, and the uh, algorithms, <laughs> the algorithms are against you maintaining right. friendships. I mean, I've yeah. got, I've got what, 12,000 followers on Instagram, and you're probably right, there's probably 150 that I would, um, well, maybe 100 that I interact with on any sort of uh, sort of rich level, but even that is is tested by the algorithm because they may not show up for two or three days, in which case I forget about them and, and, and then move right. on to the next person that interests me to, to talk to. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm just reminded of... Uh uh, a um, Swedish uh, TV host, young, youngish guy, came over and interviewed me with a film crew some years ago, and he said he he had heard about Dunbar's number. He was going to put it to the test because he had, like all media people, you know, a sort of enormous Facebook following of several thousand people, and so he was going to go around and visit every single one of them over the course of a year and put this to the test. And he said it was quite hilarious, really. In the end, he had to admit that I was probably right. There were only about 150 people that kind of welcomed him with open arms, if you like, and they were all the people he knew anyway. But he would turn up to <laughs> people's all. weddings, you know, out of the blue <laughs> completely without <laughs> warning and, you know, be greeted with, you know, who the hell are you and why are you here? And he actually said, you know, he had a couple of people just slam the door in his face. <laughs> yeah. So hi. much for Facebook We're, friends. Yeah, but I think that's hi, I'm a Facebook friend. <laughs> that's partly because of the the kind of algorithms and, and the business plan that most of these digital media work on because obviously they want you to connect up with as many people as possible yeah. because that it, you know sort of makes their advertising kind of algorithms work more more effectively and therefore they get more money. Um, but uh, whether that's meaningful or not to you, so they call everybody a friend, you know, but whether that's actually a meaningful friend yeah. is another matter. And I don't think people are really fooled because they know perfectly well who their uh, good friends are and who the kind of voyeurs on their breakfast photographs are. Or watching Bram go to the gym, and, and so, so that leads me that leads me to another question that's completely off the topic of me at the gym. If if you're a young or if you're a leader, I guess of any sort of uh, age, and and you want to be better as a leader, is it possible to use this framework, this Dunbar's theory, to to actually actually reflect on? your close friends, your acquaintances, the, the, the 150 and break it into its component parts and then curate that feed and change it and maybe promote people from, from just the 100 into the 50 and then the 50 into the 
the 15 and maybe one of the 15 into the five, dependent on, on what fulfilment or richness they might bring to, to your life? Uh, I, I think the short answer is yes, of course. Uh, I, I mean, this is all about, if you like, you know, management of personnel uh, at the end of the day. Um, and I think wise business leaders, uh, if they haven't already did, discovered this informally um and i would argue in many ways you know the military spent 300 years trying to figure out what the best structures were okay the military have kind of a unique set of circumstances to deal with it's called battles Mm. (laughs) you know where men's lives are seriously at risk this is not games you know men's lives are at risk on the battlefield if you get your command structures uh messed up you know and, and so on but, you know, the, there is a sort of comparability in terms of the problem you're trying to solve in, in the civilian world, and particularly the, the world of large-scale organizations like administration, government administration, uh, big companies, and, uh, and so on. And so you need to think in terms of uh, building a group around you, I guess, that, that both have the diversity that can feed into you and you're being willing to trust them, which is what these relationships are all about, basically. Um, The levels of, uh, the the layers of friendship in some ways correspond uh, not only to the kind of warmth of the relationship, but also the degree of trust you can have in the person. So you have to be able to trust the guys below you will do their job. We're talking about this in some ways in a a vacuum because both both Trent and I have, have been company commanders and in fact Trent was a a battalion commander and so from my perspective if you have 150 people inside that organization and I'm the company commander I'm trying to arrange that let's just say I'm trying to arrange uh, my 150 friends in some sort of an order that's that's being done focused on me me as the the individual looking at it but there might be someone inside that group who's more popular than me, that's also arranging that, that group in their order, and that's conflicting conflicting against my yes. order and yeah. making it tumultuous yep. and making it a difficult 150 to... Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. Uh, that, that's exactly why the uh, military, you know, imposes discipline from on high because that solves those kind of problems. Um, or at least it, it doesn't solve them completely, but it, it reduces... Uh, at least this is my guess. I'm, um, I'll, I'll stand to be corrected, uh, but um, you know, my guess is it, it just helps to minimise the levels of conflict um, that yeah. are likely to occur. Now, you know, th- there's a difference between civilian life and, and military life in the sense that you know the guys in the military know what what the issues are, and they know that you know. Their, their lives, in some sense, literally depend on you know, uh, doing as the command structure tells them to do. Um, whereas in civilian life, people are simply not going to put up with that kind of discipline. You know, um, otherwise nobody would exceed the speed limit. Everybody would pay their taxes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, which manifestly, you know, people clearly don't do. They're not prepared to buckle on, you know, knuckle down under those those levels of discipline you need in the military. So, it, it, you know, civilian organizations have to become much more centered around um, kind of, I, I hesitate to use the word charismatic individuals um, or charismatic leaders, but there is a sense in which there has to be 
uh, a belief that the, the the person above you, as it were, in charge, uh, is you know doing a good job and, uh, and and working in your best interest. And if you don't have that belief, then you're going to have a very tricky organisation because you're just going to end up with factions fighting against each other all the time. A more charismatic leader is going to is going to bond everyone at their different their different uh, layers tighter together. I assume. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, actually. I've always been struck by the fact that leaders often give the impression of knowing everybody in their organisation, and that clearly that's impossible, you know, if they've got a, a big company or a big organisation of, of many thousands of people. But yet they kind of can come across as, you know, it's, it's the human touch, I suppose, knowing uh, even the, the humblest person on the shop floor kind of oscillate between going, well, it's because to get to be a leader, you have to have a very big brain. That means you've got more space than can cope with 150 for the rest of us have to manage with. Uh, but I think that's fairly implausible. I think what a lot of the time they do is, is just very good social skills in that they kind of act like mediums in a way, I mean, spiritual mediums. You know, they feed you a bit of information and you provide the answer and sort of uh, uh, that allows them to kind of, come back as though, you know, they've, they've known that all along and, and they've known you since you were the age of five and what have you, uh, that, that creates that sense of, you know, um, uh, uh, we're good friends here. But. Yeah, there's, there's a few little tricks like that that you can use when you're in those large organisations. Um, you know, th- a number of people use different types of yeah. techniques, yeah. Yeah. Mm. What, are you, what are your thoughts on, on leadership, Dr. Dunbar, you know, from your anthropology work and studying primates, I would assume, from a, a leadership perspective? I know it's a little bit off topic, but um, I'm sure you have some experience in that area. Uh, the answer is at the level of small-scale societies, the monkey and ape society, I mean, they don't really have kind of leaders in the sense that we do if, if there is anybody that functions in that sort of... Um, Slot. It's it's probably because they're a, the biggest thug on the 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 the, um, the square, as it were. There are exceptions to that that are often knowledge based. So there are um, one particular species of baboons in Ethiopia does defer to old uh, males that are sort of too old and, and decrepit to really rush out to the front and do anything. But they have been round long enough, for example, to know where the water holes still held water 10 years ago when they had a really bad drought. And and they seem to defer to that kind of knowledge for those kinds of things. But otherwise, you know, by and large, it's, it's um, you know, sort of m- more of a, a dominance-based kind of system as much as anything. I don't think you see anything of the kind of charismatic leader that you see even in small-scale societies. But what seems to be necessary in human small-scale societies is once you tip over that 150 layer, uh, you basically need some kind of, I guess, management structure is the word. And that that, that comes in two ways. Either you get the local thug, you know, sort of bulldozing everybody uh, to hand over their money as, as taxes, uh, or, or you get charismatic leaders yeah. who, um, you know, provide, who are... People, I won't say worship, but you know they, you know, should do as as the leader says because the leader actually does know best in some way. And of course, that depends on a track record as well as just a lot of self confidence. Probably, 
Um, but I think beyond that, I mean, it's it, you know, organizations. We're not really designed to live in these big organizations. Never mind big kind of nation states that we have these days and mm. big urban sprawls that we have these days. And they they kind of need some kind of structuring in some way to work best. But I think in terms of business and administration and, and even the structure of schools, you know, paying attention to these layers of friendship um, uh, probably is a, a wise thing to do. And there are one or two examples I've come across where schools, for example, have been restructured so that they're in sub-communities of about 150. Right. Um, we, we wait to see with a lot of these things whether it will work better in the end because it's only recently that the, these kind of changes have, have begun to appear anyway, I think. But it does work very well in, in um, uh, Gore-Tex and, and, you know, the company is very um, proud of how, A, how well it works. It's widely regarded as an incredibly successful company. Yeah. Um, but also how good their kind of... Uh, worker management relationships are actually are. Is there any other evolutionary habits, for instance, that maybe humans have that, that a leader might might want to understand? I know you've talked about um, the evolution of uh, the grooming from apes and how that turned into sharing rumour and innuendo and how you know, and, I, and I, we teach quite often in our courses that leaders need to be aware of of these evolutionary um, habits because mm. because they need to be able to control the narrative. If they're not, then people are giving each other gifts through the through um, creating rumours. Yeah. Um, is there anything yeah. else we should be aware of from that evolutionary standpoint? The bottom line here really is the mechanisms we use in creating friendships because we also use these same uh, kind of behavioural mechanisms for creating community bonding in small-scale societies, and we have very effectively extrapolated them upwards to create larger-scale communities, as they were nations and nation-states and the like. Um, and this really goes back to the underpinning basis of uh, monkey and ape uh, friendships, if you like, the way they build their relationships. And this is essentially built through the endorphin system in the brain, which are these um, uh, chemicals that you know, um, chemically very closely related to morphine, but uh, we don't get addicted to them in the same way. Um, uh, but they're essentially part of the pain control system, and they make us feel kind of very relaxed and uh, contented and, uh, and happy and, uh, and unstressed, if you like. Now, monkeys and apes kick that system uh, into action by social grooming, and it's the kind of um, parting of the, uh, of the fur that, that does that, and we still do it. You know, we do it with stroking and cuddling and hugging and, and caressing and things. Um, but that only works up to, you know, that the intimacy of physical touch means that only really works up to group size of 50. So what humans have had to do is evolve other ways of triggering the same system without physically having to touch somebody, which then means you can do it with several people mm. simultaneously. And what seems to have happened is a whole series of, behaviors have been lit on and, and brought into play and these successively are laughter uh, singing dancing rituals of religion uh, eating and drinking together uh, socially so feasting if you like and storytelling and particularly emotional storytelling uh, all these kick the endorphin system in all of them cause people who engage in these activities 
to become uh, bonded together. And you see this in um, in a, uh, all traditional small-scale societies. So you just think of, you know, the Australian Aboriginal corroborees. You know, this is a once in a while, once every two years maybe, uh, a big event, everybody gets together, big feast, lots of dancing, lots of singing and stuff. Everybody goes away to their dispersed bands again afterwards, feeling they belong, you know, to, to that's the community they belong to. And in in many ways, kind of, I suppose actually the Australian Aboriginals are not a bad example here of this because, you know, each band has a little key to the, to the big, origin story the snake story or whatever it may be of uh, of the tribe and when they get together they can fit all these bits of the story together and kind of identifies who they are as a community and that it's that sense of having a kind of backstory of who you are and why you're there and, and, and what your purpose in life is if you like that then probably does become very important to to any organization you know that it it has a clear function and that's why kind of um <clears throat> Uh, uh having that sense of history then becomes really Im- important I, I'm, I'm kind of uh, really alerted to this by um, Owen Eastwood, who, who worked with the All Blacks, a psychological coach, sports coach, rather than a you know, rugby coach. And he's, you know, he was telling me that first thing that happens, you know, when you're uh, picked to, to go into the, 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 the pool that makes up the All Blacks team any given year is they take you around and show you the ancestors' photographs on the walls, all the guys who played for the All Blacks right from the first game in 19-0-something or other, you know. Mm. And a, it creates this real sense of family, you know. Mm. Otherwise, you know, how come... A mere five million people can wipe the floor with the yeah, rest of yeah. us <laughs> year after year. You know? yeah. It's that sense. I'm sure it's that sense of sense of bonding, and and uh, we, this is our community, and you know, we all work and fight for each other. As it, uh, it's important. That's excellent. Thanks very much. It's been a real treat to have you on the podcast, Dr. Dunbar. Trent and I are big fans. Have you got any final questions at all, Trent? No, I think think we've covered a lot of ground and, and I'm really I'm really grateful to you for sharing your time with us and our listeners and uh, uh, look forward to reading a little more about your work. Yeah, and I think that you'd be... I hope that you're pleased to know that in our in our own consultancy, we we like to to use this activity to make people really reflect on who it is that they have inside those groups and and why they're there, and to identify the fulfilling relationships that they have, and to and to try and eradicate those more toxic relationships in order to strengthen that that Dunbar's number. Um, very very good. Oh, thanks very much for having me. It's been great fun, guys. Doctor Robin Dunbar is a world renowned anthropologist specialising in primate behaviour. Currently, he is a professor of evolutionary psychology at the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom. Thank you, kind sir. Pleasure. Righto. Thanks for listening, gang. If you'd like to find out about our parent company and the leadership and resilience training and workshops that they offer, please head to the Hindsight Leadership website, www.hindsightleadership.com. Hindsight Leadership, all one word. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, and remember, every dollar helps, you can do that through the podcast website at www.podcast.warrioru.com.au. There's a donation tab at the bottom of the main page, and all donations are really appreciated. They keep the show on the road. 
And if you're interested in the Warrior U military preparation course, whether that's just a physical training component or the whole cultural training package, this can also be found through the podcast website, www.podcast.warrioru.com.au. Thanks for listening.